We have been at the Acts 29 conference, or a few of us, about 20 of us, were down at the Acts 29 conference this week from uh, Thursday to Saturday, Thursday to yesterday. Over that week, I've heard 10 sermons, 10 sermons by really smart, intellectual, uh, eloquent speakers. And I think what made this sermon so hard to write was those 10 sermons, because I was like, how do I say this in a new way? Because they say things that are different, like fancy And I was like, and I think I got all this pressure put on me and then I'm like, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. I could read this passage out and it would be edifying for us. We've read it twice already and I could read it again, sit down, and that would be enough for us. But God does an incredible work through the preached word. So I will preach it. I won't be as eloquent as them, but it's all right. Only 20 of you heard them. Uh, So we will see how we go. One thing you may notice is that I often leave silence before I pray. Uh, And I just encourage you, use that time for yourself to meditate on the Word, to humble yourself before the Word, to invite the Holy Spirit to just fill you, help you understand. Use it to pray for me. I am in need of God's grace as much as anyone. I'm in need of God's grace as we teach the Word especially. So I encourage you, as we have that silence before we pray, please use it uh, for uh, your, your own good in prayer. So let's pray. Once again, gracious Father, we come before your word in awe and reverence. We tremble before it. It is a mighty word. It is our sole authority. It is what we live by and are guided by. It is our life and our salvation is declared through it. Lord, it is your word that was breathed out by you through the Holy Spirit into men who penned it down and you have sustained it and protected it and brought it to this day. And Lord, we we love it so dearly. As the psalmists in 119 declare over and over again, their delight is in the law of the Lord. It is sweeter than honeycomb. And Lord, I just pray that now as we come to your word, as we are reminded once again of our identity in Christ, as we look to the work of Christ and see how he fits into this, to you, this divine triune God, this threefold being who we cannot comprehend. We only know what you have revealed of yourself. And Lord, we are gracious that you choose to reveal any of yourself to us. So, Father, I pray that we would come as children once again, humble before you, humble servants, willing to learn from your word, to be encouraged, to be uplifted, to be built up, that we may be immobilized and sent out into this world as your ambassadors, as your witnesses, with an identity so fixed in you that we will not move to the right or to the left, but we will keep moving forward on the narrow road that you have for us. Bring glory to your name as you edify the church, as we worship you through teaching your word. Bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in the midst of Ephesians 1. We're going to be preaching from 7 to 10. 
Uh, we did three to six last week. This is the midst of Paul just blurting out his divine truth about this triune, threefold God and how this incomprehensible, infinite God created this world to bring glory to his name and salvation for his people. From the beginning of creation, he had a plan to make for himself a people that would be holy and blameless and that people he pursued through their rebellion, that people he pursued through Israel, that people he saved through Christ and that people he sustains through the Holy Spirit. And it's all through the work of one God who has these three persons and a complex, complex deity that we will understand one day in glory. In these 12 verses, Paul is just rambling about this God. It's not incoherent rambles, but there is no commas, no full stops in this passage at all, from verse 3 to 14. Now you're going to be like, well, there are, I can see them. I'm talking about the original, when it was written in Greek. When Paul wrote this in Greek, he just blurted all this out. It was like gushing out of him. This is the Father's work. This is the Son's work. This is the Holy Spirit's work. And they all work as one. They all have one purpose, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Last week, we looked at the Father's work And it says from the beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is where this section starts. The rest of it is explaining what this spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is. Paul starts by saying that God is endlessly good. That word blessed we looked at last week means eulogy or it's where we get our word from for eulogy. And that is a declaration of the good things that God did. And we see that God is the source of all good. He is, by definition, goodness. He has an abundance to give to us. And it's from this that it overflows into this spiritual blessing, this this spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And this gift, this, this gift, this blessing is not of worldly materialism. This thing is not even in this world. It says it's actually in the heavenly places. This gift is not things that we want on this earth. This gift is far, far greater. What what troubles me is I hear so many Christians, Christians who are in the church and Christians that are around the, the churches say things like, I'm waiting for God to bless me. I'm just, I'm just here, I'm just here waiting for God to bless me. What is that? What are you looking for? What are you waiting to be blessed with? He has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We, we have the completion of the blessing. It, it says here that we have all the blessing we need. We're not waiting for more. We're not waiting for a better house, a better job, better family or better uh, children. I don't know what else you want in your life. He's given you himself. The heavenly places, this spiritual blessing in heavenly places is the triune God. It's his work in our life. It's his choosing of us in salvation. It's his working out of our salvation through Christ. It's his giving us the Holy Spirit to sustain us and sanctify us to the conform, uh, to conform to the likeness of his son. That is the spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is the greatest gift we could have as a Christian. We don't need another blessing. 
And can I say, can I say to you Christians, to myself as well, if you're looking for a blessing that is outside of God, you're looking for an idol. You're looking for something that is to be worshipped outside of Him. If God is not a sufficient blessing, if this blessing in the heavenly places is not enough for you, you worship something that isn't God. I love John Bunyan. John Bunyan was around in the 1600s, wrote the second most printed book or the second most translated book other than the Bible. It was called The Pilgrim's Progress, a story of a Christian, can come, like it's a, a parallel to the coming of uh, heading into heaven, the pursuit of heaven. That's, his, that's what he's famous for. While he was in prison, he wrote this. I have made it, I have, I've come to see that if ever I would suffer rightly, I must first pass the sentence of death upon everything that can be properly called a thing of this life, even to reckon myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyment, and all as dead to me and myself as dead to them. The second was to live upon God that is invisible. Bunyan came to the conclusion that every blessing in this world he needed to die to because there was one blessing the invisible God. He needed to surrender his life to the invisible God and live upon this God that is invisible above all else. And we see that summarized at the end of our section last week in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. This summary of saying there is nothing better. There is nothing I'm waiting for. To the praise of his glorious grace, he has given me every good gift I can have in himself. And everything else is extra, not to be worshipped, but to be enjoyed as a secondary blessing. He himself is the primary blessing. So as we think about waiting for more, we are not waiting for another blessing, but we're waiting for the fulfillment of this blessing. We have the blessing in all the spiritual places, in the he- uh, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, but it will come in its fullness soon. It will come in its completion when Christ comes to restore this world and we fix our eyes on that day and we wait for that day when all things will be united in heaven and on earth, in Him, in Jesus. And in verse 6, it transitions from the Father's choosing work to the Son, the Beloved, as it is called. In verse 6, it says, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So this grace, this glorious grace, which we should praise and give honour to, is in the Beloved, who is Christ. We know that when Jesus was baptised, he said, uh, this is my Son, who I am well pleased with. The only one the Father could be well pleased with was his Son, because he was the only one that was faithful. So his Beloved is his Son, Jesus. We saw last week that the Father's work, the blessing in the spiritual, uh, the spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is that He chose us in Him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we'll be holy and blameless. We were to be called a people for Himself, from every tribe, nation, tongue. We were predestined, that means predetermined to be children, adopted children. And we have this image from last week of this father climbing up a hill to claim the defected children, to claim the children that have been left by their parents because they have defects and they're never going to amount to anything. This was the context of Ephesus. 
That if your child had a defect, you'd leave it on a mountain outside the city. And we have this image of the Father God climbing up that hill, claiming those defected children, not as slaves as was common in that day, but as children. Not just children, but sons. And the reason it uses the word sons was that we have an inheritance. And in those days, the son received the inheritance. So we are children, we are heirs, we have an inheritance. And it's all because of the Beloved. And that is where we get to today, the work of the beloved, the work of Christ, the work that Christ does in order so that we can be the children of God, in order that we can be holy and blameless, in order that one day we will enter into the heavenly places and see the glory of God in his fullness. So in verse 7, 7 to 10, our passage for today The work of Christ is revealed. In Him, we have redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Such a simple verse. Very little is said just that in Him we have redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, which you could really say is the gospel. And Paul, like Paul, in his gushing of these words, instead of unpacking this, just states it and moves on. Like he did before, even, even as he chose us in the foundation, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He just says it, moves on. But he explains everything in Romans. So if you want to see the full explanation of all that Paul speaks about, just read the book of Romans. But we're going to unpack this word redemption. This word redemption. Now, in the New Testament, we see this word used six times in six different ways. It's not a simple word. We have one word, redemption. In the Greek, there's six words. I'm not going to pronounce them because I don't know them, and, but I'm going to tell you what they mean. It says this. Uh, these are the six different ways it's used. It's a legal term used, uh, used in a way to cancel crimes or cancel debts, so it's just a pardoning. Uh, it's a legal term used to pay for the crime or to pay, for, pay the penalty for the crime. It's a legal term used to adopt a child It's reconciliation of two disputing parties. It's to buy or purchase something from the marketplace, to release from captivity by paying a ransom, all of which we know in Paul's writings he uses to describe what Christ has done for us. So we can see in this redemption, this word, it is not just a simple word that we brush over. In him we have redemption. Oh, okay, that's nice. We have redemption. No, this is a word that means something so much more. Something for us to meditate on and ponder and think through that we have been reconciled to God. That we have been bought with a price. That our debt has been cancelled. That we were something to purchase from the marketplace. That we were a child that needed adopting. Not a slave that got adopted, but a child that got adopted. That we have been released from captivity. Wow. Redemption, in one sentence or a couple of words, in him we have redemption, we get this weight of what Christ has done. And in John 8, it reveals to us what we need releasing from. In John 8, 34, it says, truly, truly, whenever Jesus says truly, truly, he wants you to listen up. It's an important phrase. I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now in this day and age, in the 
time when this was written, people knew about slavery. The Romans had 20 million slaves. That's nearly more than our country. 20 million slaves. And if your family member was in slavery to the Romans, you needed to be someone who had wealth, someone who had power, someone who could manage to give the price for that slave. Well, Jesus tells us and gives a really good example for the people of the time that we are enslaved to sin. This is why I believe the gospel is offensive. If I go out there today and go up to someone and say, oh, you're in slavery, people aren't going to respond too well. And we shouldn't respond well. We are insane in many ways if we go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm in slavery. I, I think that. Now, as a Christian, we're okay to read this and go, he who commits sin is a slave to sin. We've become numb to that statement. But let's think about that. Because it's pretty easy to prove to someone that they are in slavery to sin. Because all we need to say to them is, well, if you're not in slavery to sin, stop lying. Stop lusting. Stop coveting after your neighbor's things. Or we could say, love your neighbors, all of them, every time, no matter what they do, even your enemies. Or the greatest one, love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength every moment, every second of the day. Can you do that? Because if you can't, you're enslaved to sin. It's pretty easy to point out to people and tell them that clearly we're enslaved to sin. We can't stop it. And slavery means that you can't stop it. These Roman slaves couldn't get themselves out. They couldn't run away. They couldn't escape. They were chained. There was no possible way, no possible means, unless an outside source came in and relieved the pressure, took off the chains, had the wealth to uh, remove them from it. And we see that our redemption, our exit from slavery, is through his blood. Through his blood. Our Redeemer needed to be someone who wasn't in slavery. Our Redeemer needed to be someone who was different to us. Someone who is described as faithful, righteous and holy. All the things that we aren't. And we see that Jesus, he is the faithful one. Jesus is the faithful one. He comes in human flesh, yet he remains faithful to the Father and is obedient to him in every moment of his life. We see that he is described as the righteous one who obeys the whole law, who never lies, never covets, loves his neighbor as he ought and loves the father with all his heart, mind, soul and strength every second of the day. He's the faithful one, he's the righteous one and he's the holy one. He is outside of this world. Holy means to be set apart, utterly unique. We need someone outside of our slavery to step into our life, into our position without the slavery to set us free. And Jesus is the one and the only one in all of creation that could do it. I can't step into your position for you because I'm enslaved myself. We needed a free man, a free man who was faithful, 
A free man who was never lured away by his desires or chased after the lusts of his heart. We needed one who was always, every day of his life, for every moment of the day, obedient to the Father. Only someone outside of the slavery could save those in slavery. Only those who had wealth that the slaves didn't have could save them. Only those who had power that the slaves didn't have could save them. And we have that in our Redeemer, Jesus. He has wealth that we don't. He's holy and we're not. He's faithful and we're not. He's righteous and we're not. And He is infinitely powerful that when it says that the wages of sin is death, Jesus can wear that wage and it will not hold him down. The wages of sin is death, therefore the cost of our slavery, the slave price to set the slave, the slaves free was blood. His blood. So in him we have redemption through his blood. The only sufficient price for you to be set free of your slavery to sin was that Jesus, the only holy one, the only faithful one, the only righteous one, would go and die and shed his blood for us. That is the only means. So he steps into this world. He steps into our place. He steps into this life and he lives perfectly by fulfilling the law, goes to the cross where our sin is placed on him and he appeases the slave price or the father's wrath. We see this system played out in Leviticus. Leviticus 16, we see this sacrificial put in place as a symbol of the weight of human sin. It was never meant to be sufficient. So the, the, the common principle each year would come around and the high priest would take two goats. And the first goat, they would pray over and they'd place the sins of and he would take the goat into the Holy of Holies and he would slit its throat and spill the blood. And it was a symbol of this blood payment that we would be set free of our sins for that year. But a goat wasn't enough. The goat sacrifice isn't enough. He's not holy. He wasn't faithful. He's not even the equivalent of a human. So it was merely a symbol, a symbol of the weight of our sin, that blood had to be paid. And each year it was a reminder that we need someone outside of our slavery to step into our place. Someone who was different to us, someone who was righteous, someone who was faithful, who could spill his blood and it would not destroy him forever. Hebrews 9 tells us, He, Jesus, entered once, for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of the goats and the calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of the goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How much more will the blood of Christ? The blood payment had to be paid. Something had to die. The goat wasn't enough. It was not holy. It was not faithful. It was a symbol to remind us of the weight of our sin year after year. But Christ comes in our place. Christ comes in perfect 
living. Christ, Christ, Christ comes in perfect holiness, completely and utterly unique outside of our world, and he endures the suffering for us. His blood is sprinkled over the altar, down the cross, over us, that we would be redeemed, that we would be claimed out of that slavery, that we would no longer be slaves, but we would be free, that we would be set free and be able to live in that freedom. That is what Christ claimed for us. We have been sanctified. So why is Christ's death enough for all of mankind? Because put Christ on one end of the scale and the whole of humanity on the other and Christ outweighs them all. He's holy, holy, holy. In John 12, it says that when Isaiah saw the God upon the throne, John 12 tells us that he was seeing Christ. He was seeing Christ when he saw the holiness of God on the throne in Isaiah 6. Christ has existed before all things. He was with the Father and the Spirit in the beginning before all things were created and He alone was worthy to sacrifice Himself. If He didn't pay His life, if He didn't willingly lay down His life for his sla- for the slaves, we would still be slaves to sin. The result is the second part of the verse. We have redemption through his blood. It cost him his life. He's paid for it with his blood. Now we have forgiveness of our trespasses. Our redemption, our redemption results in forgiveness. All our failings, and failings is a bad word, all our sins, all our sins, everything we have ever done is forgiven. Trespasses mean to take missteps or to head in the wrong place. We have continually, all the days of our life until Christ called us, continually walked down the wrong way. Continually taking missteps, disobedience, selfish pleasures, lusts of our heart, covetousness, all these things. We have not for a single moment loved the, God, or loved the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. And if we haven't done that, we've broken the whole commandment. Yet this says, this tells us that we have been forgiven of our trespasses. Not just one, all of them. We know in 1 John it says that we have been forgiven from all unrighteousness, all our failings, all our sin. So in Leviticus there was two goats, right? The first one got slaughtered on the altar. The second one, the priest, high priest would pray over. He would pray over and he would pray that the Israelites' sins would be left on that goat and they would take the goat out into the wilderness as far as they could get away from the city so that it would never, ever come back. And it was this beautiful image that our sins have been sent far from us. But the reality was they did it every year. When we read this word, this word forgiveness, it means sent away. What Paul is saying here is that our sins have been sent away, our transgressions, our trespasses have been sent away. That means that Jesus, who is infinitely greater than us and way more than infinitely greater than the goat, Jesus actually took the sin of the world upon his head, as it were, and he carried them an infinite distance away from us. Can you just comprehend that for a moment? 
That they used to take this goat out to the wilderness and say, our sins have been taken away, but of course our sins were always there. Today, we stand in the knowledge that Christ has forgiven us to the point that our sins are an infinite distance away from us. As far as the east is from the west, they're nowhere near us, they're not close to us, they're infinitely far away from us. Do we live in that? Do we believe that? That... He has redeemed us to the point where they're not even near us. And you're all saying there, but I keep sinning. And He knows it. He knows that. But He's saying, I don't even measure them anymore. I don't count them against you. If you are in Christ, if you are in Him, if you have repented and believed in Him, trust in His death and His resurrection, your sins aren't near you. Your sins are infinitely far away from you. They cannot return. The guilt that they bring is not on your head. It is on Christ. That to me is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Take cars, houses, blessing on this earth, family, everything else. That to me is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that to Paul is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that your sin is an infinite distance from you and me. And that when Christ looks upon us, when God the Father looks upon us, He sees His beloved Son. So when Christ was baptized and He said, this is my Son who I am well pleased with, He says that to us. Because of Christ, because we're in Christ, He says that to us. Can we just feel the weight of that? Christian brother and sister, that you are not in your sin any longer. You may stumble and fall. You may be a saint who is falling over themselves, but you can come back to him in this moment and repent. And he doesn't hold it against you. He doesn't even think about it. Sometimes you get in this rut where you're just like, ah, oh, I sinned again, I'll just keep on doing it. I've already failed, so, so God must not want me around. I can't pray to Him, can't read the Bible. No. Come to this passage. Read this verse, just this one verse. You've sinned. Maybe it's a great sin. Maybe it's a public sin. Just read this and say, In Him I have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That means my sin is infinitely far away from me. You don't have to bear it anymore. You're free. You're not enslaved to sin. You have freedom. That means we can overcome sin. according to the riches of His grace. And that's one verse. Whew, that's a big verse. According to the riches of His grace, Paul is clearly stating that this has nothing to do with us. It's riches of His grace. It's the wealth of Him. It's the worth of Him. It's all that comes from God, this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We lack everything. He has all the worth. He has all the power. He has all the strength. And He comes down to us and helps us. We weren't like stranded in the sea. We were at the bottom, sunk to the bottom, dead, lifeless, and He does all of it. Pulls us up, gives us life, gives us strength, and takes our sin so far from us. And verse 8 tells us the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. Can we hear the weight of the words that Paul is using? He's, he's putting like emphasis on this, saying the riches... He's giving us His abundance. He lavished on us. 
poured out. He didn't restrict. He didn't say, here, have a little bit. I'll just give you some. No, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, all His grace has been poured out on you. The gift is not restrained. It's lavished upon you. Completely lavished. Can I ask, church, we have received from the riches. We have received lavishly. What does that cause in us? This whole letter, the weight of Ephesians, is that we have a new identity that we should live in chapter 1 as our identity and that will promote change in us. From 4 onwards, it tells us not to live as the Gentiles do, but to walk in this. And to walk in this means that I don't get up every day going, oh, I'm a sinner. I get up every day going, oh, have mercy on me, Lord, which I know you've lavished on me. I walk in your grace. I live in your grace. I take steps by your grace. And it's a moment after moment thing. Every moment. It's not day by day. It's not week by week. Moment after moment. If we are to live in this, we need to remind ourselves moment after moment and the gospel will overflow joy in our life. Do you have joy, brother and sister? Is the gospel producing joy in your life? It should. And I want to, I want to sit with you at some point and plead with you that there should be joy in your life. Yes, there can be suffering. And we will go through trials. And that's okay, but there's joy knowing that it's coming to an end. And our suffering shouldn't be produced by our guilt and shame. There is none of that. There's conviction and forgiveness, which means our sin is infinitely far from us. In Him, all wisdom and insight... uh, Verse 9. In Him, all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He has set forth in Christ. So as I said, the Greek has no punctuation in it, so it's quite hard to know exactly how this is meant to be phrased. There's two options here. There's the option that says, He has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, or a full stop at the end of lavished, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us. From all my reading, from the things that I've come to, I think it is the second one, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. We could be wrong. I don't think it matters too much. But what it's saying here is that in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ, this is a beautiful picture to look at that we have been given all wisdom and insight, all wisdom and understanding so that we can know the mystery of God. That we can know this. That we can know that there's before the foundations of the world, God chose those who be holy and blameless. He predestined them to be adopted as son. He did that through the work of his son by redeeming them through his blood, forgiving them of their trespasses, casting their sin an infinite distance from them. We know that. And that was a mystery. Isn't that incredible? That in Christ, set forth in Christ, because of Christ, now we, His people, who gather as His church and gather all around the world, know the mystery of God's will, which was to save a people for Himself through His Son. That we would receive love 
and grace and mercy from within this triune, incomprehensible, infinite God. We have been given wisdom that is outside of this world. Insight that is outside of this world. We are supernatural beings. Not through our own merit. Don't go walking around going, I'm supernatural. But because of Jesus. Because of Him. He's made known to us His will. His will was to create for Himself a people that would know His grace and know His mercy and know His love. And we have that. It is ours. We know that in Hebrews 11, we have this long chapter of all these faithful men starting from Abraham working through Noah. This is what the faithful did throughout the Old Testament. And right at the end it says, and all these, all these Old Testament characters, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So what we have here is just this simple phrase that says all those Old Testament characters, all the ones we see as heroes, were not heroes. They were pointing to Jesus. Jesus would be the fulfillment. He would be the mystery. They all waited for Jesus. They all wanted to see Jesus. We get to see Jesus. We get to know the mystery of God. Yes, they did grand things. Moses parted the sea and all these amazing things. All he was doing was pointing to Jesus. Just as Moses led Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, Jesus led us out of slavery to our sin and set us free. And we have been revealed this mystery. And in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You know, all the characters of the Old Testament want to point to Jesus. All of them were waiting for Jesus. They went through the Levitical system, sacrificing after sacrificing, year after year, all of which just pointed to the weight of their sin, all of which just pointed to the slavery that they had. But now, in the fullness of time, Christ will unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth, to himself. That has taken place somewhat at the cross, but it's not the fullness of time yet. The Bible speaks about the last days. We are in the last days. We've been in them for the last 2,000 years. We've been waiting for the day when the fullness of time will come, when the redeemed people of God will be united to Himself, to Christ, and both heaven and earth will be recreated into this divine, glorious place without sin or error or suffering or tears and it will be for those who call on the name of Jesus. At the fullness of time, He will bring both heaven and things on earth together in Him. I don't know what that means, but I know in Revelation we get a picture of a new heaven and a new earth, and I assume somehow heaven and earth become this like involved one world where God rules and where His people. And it's going to be glorious. And it's going to be Incredible. And it's a mystery for us to wait for, long for, anticipate for, keep our eyes fixed on Him who saved us, who claimed us, who poured out His blood for us, who sent our sins an eternal distance from us. Because when we're in heaven, they won't be there at all. We won't even be reminded of our sin. We won't even stumble, fall, think for a moment about an impure thought. It will be gone 
forever. An eternal distance from us. Right now they're at some sort of infinite distance from us. In heaven, they're eternally gone. And that is what Christ did. In his work on the cross, he poured out his blood so that we can be saved from our slavery to sin, that our sin would be forgiven and sent so far from us that we wouldn't see it. Church, I encourage you. I encourage you to meditate on your identity. What do you fix your identity in? Every morning, every moment of the day, what do you fill your mind with that, in, that tells you what your identity is? Is it Facebook? Is it the media? Is it movie after movie, TV show after TV show? Is it the world that surrounds you? Is it your colleagues at worst, your neighbours that you live with? Do they feed you your identity? Because whatever your identity is, you will live out. Whatever you see yourself as, you will start to live out. But we have to see ourselves as adopted children of God who have an inheritance who have been purchased by his blood, who have seen their sin sent so far from them that it can never return. If we start to live this out moment by moment, we will see an incredible change in our life. There's this great verse that says in Romans 8, set your minds on the things of the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the spirit is life and peace. As a Christian, our battle now is not to claim salvation. We have that. Our battle is day after day taking our mind off the flesh and fixing it on the Spirit, fixing it on the invisible God and living upon the invisible God. If our mind is on the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But that's a moment-by-moment work. Not week by week, not day by day, moment by moment. And if I'm going to do that, I need you. And if you're going to do that, you need one another. The church, together, sets their minds on the Spirit and reminds one another that we are redeemed and our sin is infinitely far from us. That means we can correct one another, correct each other in our sin, in our stumbling, and say, hey, brother, sister, It's all right that I corrected you because your sin's infinitely far from you. This is just to help you on your journey. This is just to help you keep going. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for Christ. That in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, that our sins are sent away. Lord, I feel it. I feel the joy in you. We feel the joy in you, Lord, but, but it grieves us, Lord, that there's sin that still remains. It grieves us that at times, Lord, we think highly of ourselves, that we slander or gossip or lust or covet. It grieves us, Lord, that you aren't the one we love with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But Lord, that's not our identity. Our identity is that we are your children that we are redeemed, that we are empowered by your Holy Spirit and now, Lord, we can choose to turn from it. Father, I pray 
that your word would humble us, remind us of our identity before you, that we are your children, that you are a loving father who now corrects us but has no condemnation for us because Christ was condemned on our behalf. We thank you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. You are so good. In Jesus' name, amen.